I'm Don Goldman. I'm an infectious disease uh, clinician at Boston Children's Hospital and a infectious disease epidemiologist. So you can imagine I'm very busy these days with uh, COVID-19 related issues. Uh, and I'm also the Chief Scientific Officer Emeritus at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Amar. I'm a clinician, so I work as a forensic psychiatrist. As I also work as a Chief Quality Officer at a mental health and community services provider in London and Bedfordshire. Uh, and I have a national role in England as the Improvement Lead for Mental Health with the Royal College of Psychiatrists. What's your understanding of equity and equality in society? What is that? What is equity and what is equality? Equality is really about making sure that everyone has the same access to support. Um, whereas equity, I think, goes one step further and recognises that we all have slightly different circumstances and different needs and that we want to make sure that everyone has what they need in order to achieve the same level of outcome. So equality is really about fairness in terms of distributing resources and make sure everyone has the same access. But actually equity means that we're all achieving the same outcome and some of us might need slightly different levels of support uh, to achieve that outcome. I have a definition of uh, equity that I use when I uh, give talks, including the one we had at the forum. And it's pretty simple from a point of view of health and healthcare. It's when all people have the opportunity to attain their full health potential, and no one is disadvantaged from achieving this potential because of their social position or other socially determined circumstance. Uh, and that automatically requires a focus on population health, the, the health of the entire population, uh, because unless you start from a viewpoint of equity, you will never, ever achieve true uh, population health, and there will always be poor and marginalized populations that are left behind. One of the issues we struggle with in the United States uh, is that uh, health and health care are human rights, and everyone has equality when it comes to having those rights. Uh, and sometimes uh, I think we forget that, that this is a human right, and we need to make sure that we provide equitable prevention and care uh, that is attuned to people's uh, individual uh, circumstances. One of the things I find most uh, troubling uh, is when people say, oh my goodness, we have these incredible problems with in inequity and disparities uh, with uh, COVID-19 uh, uh, here in the United States. And I look at them and I say, what is surprising about that? We have a history uh, that is uh, full of inequity. We, we could have predicted and should have predicted uh, that uh, black people, that indigenous people, that people living in poverty or in rural areas uh, would have worse outcomes, more cases of COVID-19, uh, disparities in access and uptake of a vaccine. None of this is surprising. It, it all goes back uh, to structural and policy issues, to social determinants of health that we know uh, are socially unjust uh, and uh, inadequately 
represented for all populations in the United States. And, and the same thing I know for a fact, and I'm sure MR will agree, is true in the UK and of the global situation where we have uh, countries in Africa that have a incredibly low uptake of vaccine because they can't get vaccine. The vaccine's all been uh, bought up uh, by the richer countries. And now we have to figure out how to get it to those people who don't have that kind of advantage. So whether you're dealing uh, locally uh, in the city of Chicago or nationally in the United States or in Tower Hamlets in London or in uh, uh, Tanzania uh, or India, the, the issues are all uh, pretty much the same. We have not paid sufficient attention over the years to an equitable society uh, where we could have avoided what we're seeing with COVID-19. I think we've always known dis that disparities in outcome exist. I look at my own, um, the patients and people that I serve in my clinical work, people with uh, long-term enduring mental illnesses like schizophrenia, where we've known for decades that they're, you know, they, they die on average 10 to 15 years earlier than the rest of the population, largely due to cardiovascular risk factors that are uh, treatable, preventable. And uh, we've done very little, actually, to, to bridge that gap over the years. What, what, what the last year and a half has done is merely bring that home to us, accentuate it in a way that's impossible to ignore now. Uh, again, in my organisation, a quarter of the deaths of people that we've lost over the last year and a half have been people with learning disabilities. Again, a really vulnerable population. Um, and, and I think, you know, we've, we see now much clearer the effect of all of these factors, social factors, economic factors, structural factors on, um, on outcomes and, and people essentially losing their lives because of them over the last year and a half. That brings us to where we are now, which is, you know, having to focus much more on putting equity right at the, at the forefront of our efforts around improving care and improving quality which it hasn't been up till now. Are you positive, both of you, about what's going to happen next? Because I think, you know, that the kind of unfair, unjust nature of the world that we live in has really had a spotlight put on it, as you both say. But are you feeling that this opportunity will be grasped and that people will politically um, actually start to prioritise these issues? I think it's it's exactly that. It's a political with a small p issue. It's 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 not one for health alone. In fact, health contributes towards this, but it, it, there are so many other factors that are, are beyond the realms of just health and healthcare. Um, we need we need a, an approach across the whole of society that really focuses on the determinants of health from childhood, uh, looking at young, you know, early early years, families, accommodation, access to education and food. Uh, and that requires a whole whole societal approach to this. I think there are signs that we're seeing uh, things happen differently and greater collaboration across the system than we've had before. But we have a long way to go before we truly um, adopt uh, some of the learning from people like Marmot, who, who've been telling us for a long time now what the evidence base tells us about where we should be intervening. And what's your perspective, Don, from the US? You've had a change of administration quite recently. You've had all sorts of kind of social upheaval. And are you hopeful that, that equity will be prioritised? It does give me uh, heart to see that the uh, rage and the frustration, especially of black people in the United States, is being openly expressed and recognised as legitimate. 
And for the first time in this country, we have people who are willing to say that we have systemic racism and the, the, uh, the structural issues uh, that have kept people basically oppressed uh, need to be dealt with. And, and that's a great thing. And, and to see uh, people allying with the Black Lives Matter movement and taking uh, care of noticing and addressing uh, some of the anti-Asian sentiment in this country fueled by our 45th president, uh, but also part of American history for a very long time, seeing indigenous populations who've suffered greatly under COVID uh, getting the attention they deserve. All that is great. Uh, but moving into action and dealing with what we need to do at the policy level in a deeply polarized society is going to be a long journey. And I just hope we have the patience and the fortitude to take it on and move forward. Uh, the problem we have, we, we have an administration now that is uh, really uh, noticing and dealing with these issues as best it can, but it's really brought out the polarization in the country for every uh, a person who thinks that we do have systemic racism, you have a, a person who says, that's crazy, I'm not racist, my friends aren't racist, and certainly the country isn't racist. And that polarization is going to hold us back. And I know for a fact, and Amar, you may want to comment, it's been very difficult for people in England to say that there's systemic racism in England. So um, the road is long and um, bending the justice curve is, is going to take some time. And I, my more negative and pessimistic side saying, says that we've been here before, maybe not uh, quite so dramatically, and, and we've always tended to uh, forget and get complacent. I wondered if you could kind of tell us a bit about the session that you ran with Shannon Welsh at the conference last month. You know, I guess one of the questions that people will ask is how, how do we achieve equity? What do we have to do to, to do that? And you've got a, uh, an approach for um, using improvement science to, to accelerate change. So tell us about that, that approach, Tom. Right. Well, I, I often say to the consternation of some of my colleagues uh, that uh, we cannot solve racism and the kind of injustice we're talking about here by doing a quality improvement project or 100 quality improvement projects. Uh, that said, quality improvement and improvement science offers a way to organize our thinking around the kinds of activities that are needed strategically and practically uh, to make progress on an identified uh, problem. And uh, I tend to use almost no jargon when I talk about that because I think these principles are universal and QI just happens to have a good way of expressing them in a way that people can understand uh, and apply. Uh, I tend to talk about this as a six-level problem and to try and understand what quality improvement has to offer at each level because it, it's different at each level. Uh, we have to deal, as Amara was saying, with individual people, their health literacy, their circumstances, their understanding, the, uh, the historical uh, trauma and injustice they've experienced, uh, their ethnicity, uh, and, and all of that has to be understood. So if you don't deal with individuals and have a plan for that, you're going to fail. If you don't deal with the clinical providers who are uh, responsible for prevention and care uh, of uh, disease, uh, then you're not going to make progress. And we know that in the United States, uh, physicians still 
in many cases, uh, feel that they are in charge and that they are not racist and, and so forth. Acknowledgement of the team nature of improvement and the need to confront implicit bias is incredibly important. At the level of the clinic or the microsystem, having a strategical approach, strategic approach, which is what Shannon Welsh was talking about, and I know Amar uh, it, uh, in his organization, dealing with it as a healthcare delivery uh, system. Uh, and then you've got the community and legitimate engagement and co-production of and with the community is absolutely critical. And most healthcare delivery institutions have done a remarkably poor job at understanding and engaging in an authentic way with the community. And then if you don't have uh, changes in policy and payment, you're going to really struggle to make any progress at, at all in the long term. And here's where, as I look at the United States response to COVID-19, I wish a systems scientist, an improvement scientist, were part of the administration's plan because they would have immediately pointed out that there was no system understanding to really address the acute needs of COVID-19. And fortunately, we're starting to begin to understand that there's a systems approach to this and the communication in a way that people can understand and consistently is part of, a, of uh, uh, working in a, a better system. So I hope that wasn't too long-winded, but it's a multi-level problem. And at each level, improvement science has a role to play, but only as part of a multi-scientific and disciplinary effort aligned with the people we serve in the community um, and the uh, experts in other areas who know things we don't know. Amar, I wonder what your thoughts are on the progress that we have made as a nation in recent years in relation to equity and particularly racial inequality and, you know, the way that we view racism currently as a society and the way that people working in the health system view racism and view themselves and their own implicit biases. Um, Don was talking about having made some progress in that regard in the US in, in recent years with the Black Lives Matter you know, movement. All, uh, you know, it's not a problem that's been solved, but it's certainly a nation which recognises its own institutional racism. In the UK, we seem to still be denying that. I wonder what you thought about that and how that relates to the health system. I think we are making progress, but it's very gradual. Um, and, you know, from a position where we may have been pre-contemplative uh, a few years ago, uh, not even recognising uh, or turning a blind eye to the problem, even when it's in our face, I think it's now inescapable um, and the society is much more aware of this as an issue and the implications of it. So we've moved from uh, almost a pre-contemplative state to contemplative and in some cases preparing to take action about it. And that's really where I think I see most um, interest and energy is helping us move from just awareness of this issue to actually taking action. And it's that step that I think we need to help people with and, and help people understand what, what we can do, what we have agency to do ourselves and how we can influence the systems we live in and work in to be able to take action. And there are there are promising signs of this in the UK. Uh, in England, I talk about England first. Um, you know, the integrated care systems have uh, an explicit focus on the triple aim and the health of the population. And really, we can't do that without taking an equity lens from the very outset. So that's uh, that's a great step that this is going to be right at the heart of the design of the integrated care systems across England. 
Scotland, I would say, is ahead of us on this, and they have had a focus on the, the early years for many years, bringing together health, education, criminal justice, and other sectors together to think about what might make a difference to people's well-being and outcomes by focusing on the zero to five years age group. But I think there's real opportunity here for us to think uh, about the public sector and what role we can play in society, thinking about the role of an anchor organisation. You know, many of our healthcare organisations are part of the community and have a lot of economic weight and can play a real role in making sure that that economic weight is focused uh, and does as much good as it can for the local communities, focusing on the places where we know there are disparities in outcome. And I think I see greater energy at the provider level as well. And I think, you know, quality improvement, whilst it's not going to solve this issue, I think gives us a way to take action at the individual level. So I, I see and we're supporting many teams now to apply quality improvement to this topic, uh, recognizing it as a safety issue, as an issue that affects clinical outcomes and starting to understand it from different perspectives as quality improvement does and bringing together a team of people to co-produce solutions and try them out. And we've seen some teams really get into difficult territory with this, you know, territory that they would probably not have gone into a couple of years ago um, and start to name the issue, but also to start using the systematic approach of quality improvement to actually understand it systematically and start testing out ideas, small ideas that can make a difference collectively. Can you give us a bit more example of how you're doing that in relation to mental health and the particular population that you work with addressing some of these human rights issues? A number of examples, I think. Uh, look at one of my teams in East London Foundation Trust, a, a medium secure unit for people with personality difficulties and an offending history. And uh, we have a predominant award of predominantly Caucasian patients and award of predominantly non-Caucasian staff members. And that ward has chosen to apply its quality improvement skills to, to really tackling the racism, um, the verbal uh, racism uh, and, and assaults that people are endure day, day to day and starting to work together on it as a community. And that's a single ward picking up the gauntlets of this unspoken issue and starting to dive into it with uh, a lot of support around them to understand it and start to try things differently. I see a lot of work on this within the mental health field nationally. Uh, we've been working on uh, the topic of restrictive practice across uh, England for the last two or three years and enabling people to really start thinking about the impact of using restrictive practice on people's human rights um, and starting to think about how we can move upstream and, and prevent situations from reaching the point where we have to deprive people of their liberty and start to uh, force restrictions on them, which um, aren't great for anybody at all and can have devastating outcomes. And we're just about to begin now a three-year programme through the Royal College of Psychiatrists focused specifically on mental health equality issues, where we've got a number of organisations who are willing to work with us and start understanding the disparities that exist in their local communities, segment the population, start to work really closely with one or two populations where we know that there are disparities uh, and use systematic quality improvement techniques to measure and test changes. We're nearly out of time, so I want to kind of wind up now on one final question. I want to kind of think about how this topic of equity 
can most effectively be covered at future quality improvement events and other academic conferences, actually. How can the kind of conference world have the biggest impact on frontline practice by exploring this theme at events? What do you think, Don? What's the best approach? Well, you know, we're all working hard, I hope, uh, in uh, healthcare today on diversity and inclusion, which, of course, is just a step towards true equity. So when planning for a conference, the question is, are we applying the principles of diversity and inclusion and access to our conference uh, and messaging what we're going to be doing so that the people who we would like uh, to attend and diversify our discussion actually find it appealing uh, to attend? How does a conference look like it's authentically not just uh, speaking to the uh, inner circle, but are actually speaking to the people with whom we want to co-produce uh, better solutions. Uh, and uh, co-production, I think, is really the key to that. Now, within quality improvement, uh, we probably ought to look at our own house and our own methods pretty carefully so that we can uh, talk about these very difficult issues with some level of authenticity. So we talk about teamwork on and on and on. Teamwork is the key thing in quality improvement. And Amar, in fact, talks about his teams. Well, are the teams literally as inclusive as they need to be to deal with the issues we face uh, today? Uh, are, are, are the people involved in those teams, do they feel that there's trust and cultural humility so that they are empowered to speak up and actually contribute? Or are they in various uh, ways uh, discouraged or don't feel that they have the self-efficacy to contribute? Uh, and then what are the mechanisms to actually ensure uh, that the teams are operating in a way that celebrates equity and, and trust uh, in, in the longer term? If we're teaching failure mode and effects analysis, one of the ba- we always talk about it with patient safety. So how do we apply that to this issue? So if you're uh, a, a leader or a nurse or a physician in a long-term care facility or, or a nursing home, Do you really understand the individuals who come and uh, sweep the floors and clean the toilets and are the low paid people, usually of color, who are suffering most under COVID? Do you know that they, due to structural issues, are living in housing that's crowded, where everybody in the house has more than one job, where they live paycheck to paycheck? Uh, And then how do they get to your long-term care facility? Do they take three buses or a train to get there and expose themselves to the risk of COVID? Uh, can they afford not to come to work when they're sick? Or are they going to hide that they're uh, sick? Uh, do they trust the system well enough to speak up because of the historical injustice they've endured? So if we're not willing to take every tool we use and say, how would we look at this from an equity perspective? Uh, we're not going to look authentic. And that comes to data as well. Uh, you, you know, it's not just a question of stratifying data. It's a question of acting on the stratified data. It's not just a question of saying, do we have black people or white people, but asking uh, in the United States, uh, are are the people who uh, are are people of color, as we say, or brown and black people, are they from Somalia? Are they from Nigeria? Are they people brought here in chains and emerged from slavery? If we say we're going to deal with Hispanic people, they're going to include Hispanic people. Is a Peruvian American the same as a Puerto Rican American? Do we treat a Mexican American with the same respect as somebody uh, who comes from Chile? 
And the answer is probably not. So unless we take all of the things we do, whether it be measurement or systems analysis or teamwork, and subject them to the rigorous and, and enlightening lens, the clear lens of equity, uh, we're never going to have an authentic meeting. That's excellent. Um, I just want to give them a, a couple of minutes now at the end, just to kind of add to the challenge that you put there, Don, to IHI and BMJ by saying, you know, we need to get our own house in order, first of all, um, in terms of how we run this event. I think that's a really interesting uh, response to the question that I posed. Uh, Amar, what's your thoughts on that and how this event itself can become more co-produced, more um, authentic in, in dealing with this issue of equity? I totally agree with Don and his suggestions, first of all. Two things I would add to that is, first of all, you know, our work in East London has shown us that when we co-produce improvement work uh, entirely with service users and staff from the very beginning, uh, you know, we have a four times greater likelihood of achieving success. Uh, so, you know, that's a that's a, a magnitude of efficacy that I don't know that any other factor really brings us in improvement work. So we need to ensure that when we present uh, best practice improvement work to the world, that we are doing it um, in a way that showcases co-production in the work that we celebrate in these conferences. The second thing I would say is I, I, I haven't seen much evidence of the use of quality improvement on topics such as uh, racism and inequities. And I think we need to really look hard for the places that are trying to do this work using the systematic approach of quality improvement and give them a platform to share their outcomes. Because uh, the more that we can help people see how quality improvement can be used uh, to work our way through some of these difficult issues, the more that people will learn how to do the work. I think, uh, you know, we've all learned from quality improvement work that's focused on safety or flow or other aspects of quality, but we've learned much less from hearing case studies of teams that have really used the rigor of quality improvement around inequities. And I'd love to see more of that in conference programs. This was a pivotal moment for me. Uh, I was at a meeting of an academic uh, organization, uh, health services research meeting, where uh, presentation after presentation after presentation had white folks on the on the stage, one after another. And then a group showed up from Los Angeles from a neighborhood, uh, an area of, uh, I don't know, 10 or 12 blocks squared. And the people who presented there were community people who didn't know the etiquette of our meeting, who didn't speak in a polished way, who, who were dressed totally unlike all the other people on the podium. And they brought with them a academic that they identified from UCLA University uh, who had come to work with them uh, to work on the issues that they felt were most important, which happened to be obesity and diabetes. And that was the most authentic and riveting presentation I'd ever seen at that meeting. And I have to say that despite all the progress we made, I haven't seen many like it since. So if you want to have a really great meeting, give control to a large segment of the meeting to the people who have the need and are doing the work. Uh, and then we can partner with them to bring our methodology to the podium at that meeting uh, so that we all learn together. That would be really uh, catalytic from my point of view. Mm -hmm.